When you think of Mary Poppins, you probably think of flying kites, dancing penguins, splashy musical numbers, chimney sweeps, and a spoonful of sugar helping the medicine go down. You probably think of Jane and Michael Banks and all of their hopes and dreams when searching for a new nanny. And, of course, you probably think of Mary Poppins herself, as played by the great Julie Andrews, who is stern but ultimately kind, who pulls a whole lot of stuff out of a magic bag, who deems herself practically perfect in every way, and who leaves Jane and Michael when the wind changes and the Banks family is ready to come together without her. Aren't you getting all warm and fuzzy inside just thinking about it? The source material that inspired the 1964 Disney movie that so many of us know and love is a little different. Published in 1934, Mary Poppins was written by P.L. Travers, an Australian-British author who hoped to redeem some of her own childhood trauma by writing the story of the Banks family. If you've seen Saving Mr. Banks, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I would highly recommend it. Mary Poppins on the page lacks the Julie Andrews sparkly kindness. In fact, she's a little mean, and we talk a lot about that on this episode. I want to make it clear up front, because I didn't do this in my interview with today's guest, that I am all for women who are complicated and tough and not practically perfect in every way. Reading this version of Mary was just a bit of a shock after so many years of knowing Mary on the screen. In addition to discussing our reactions to the OG Mary Poppins, my guest and I spent time over the next hour diving into the historical context in which the book was written, talking about the author and her relationship to the story, considering the lack of grounding adult characters, and weighing in on whether or not there's a moral that we're supposed to take away. P.L. Travers wrote Mary Poppins episodically, and each chapter describes an adventure that's completely unrelated from the one that comes before and after. You'll hear us talk more specifically about some of those episodes and swap notes on our favorites. Today, it's a pleasure to introduce you to my guest, Misa Sugiora. Misa's ancestors include a poet, a priestess, a samurai, and a stowaway. She is the author of the award-winning It's Not Like It's a Secret, the highly acclaimed This Time Will Be Different, and a short story in Come On In, a young adult anthology of stories about immigration. Her latest book, Love and Other Natural Disasters, will be available on June 8th. Misa lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her husband, two sons, and three cats. She lives online at misasugiora.com and at miscellaneous1 on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so much to Misa for joining me for this episode. And thanks to all of you for supporting SSR in all kinds of ways. For connecting with me online, for sharing the episodes you love on social media and in real life, for leaving 5-star ratings and reviews, the list goes on. If you're not already, please make sure you're following SSR at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. I always try to keep things fun and interesting over there. You can also stay extra engaged with the podcast by joining our book club. Next week, we kick off our June reads, Ballet Shoes and Christie's Great Idea, which is the first book in the Babysitter's Club series. Joining the SSRBC, that's short for the SSR Book Club, obviously, is free, and I promise that I am not going to spam you or anything. Learn more at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. You can learn more about becoming an SSR Patreon sponsor at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. 
Being an SSR patron is about so much more than contributing a few dollars every month to help this little indie pod grow, although I super appreciate that part of it. It's also about being part of a really cool community and getting some fun extra stuff too. SSR Patreon patrons can get fun things like input on book selection, SSR merch, bonus episodes, weekly voice notes, monthly newsletters, reading recap videos, invitations to exclusive Patreon parties, and more. Plus, I am always open to thinking up new perks for SSR patrons. You can join us on Patreon for as little as a dollar per month, and even though I don't drink coffee, I know that that's way less than the cost of a single cup of fancy coffee. We would love to have you in the Patreon family. A big thanks goes out to all the Patreon supporters tuning in now. If audiobooks are part of your summer reading plan, don't forget to check out Libro.fm. Libro.fm has made it possible for you to support indie bookstores instead of giant corporations when you buy audiobooks. The audiobooks you can get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. I can't wait to hear what you're listening to and loving. Okay, listeners, as movie Mary Poppins would say, spit spot. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Misa. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thanks for having me on. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so excited. <laughs> We're starting off our Monday together. We're kicking off the week. Like, can you think of a better way to start a new week than to talk about a kid's book from 1934? I certainly can't. <laughs> Not many, not many ways better than this. Yeah. Who would have thought as adults who would have the opportunity to do this? I would not when I was a kid. No, I never would have dreamed of this, like <laughs> any of it. So. Well, we're going to have a good time. So listeners, we are talking about, drumroll please, Mary Poppins, which is a total classic. Whether you identify more with the book or the movie, like this is such a beloved story. And I personally grew up more with the movie. Um, and I think probably a majority of people will have that experience because like Disney is of course sort of like ubiquitous. But I did read the book when I was a kid, many years after I started watching the movie. I'd love to know Misa a little bit more about your experience with Mary Poppins, whether the book or the movie and why you decided to read this book for our conversation today. Yeah, I, I know I read the book because I have a really strong, a really strong visual memory of the illustration of the tea party that was in the air on the ceiling. And yeah, I know I, I actually don't have memories of the book itself. So a lot of it was sort of new to me as I reread it weirdly. And I also watched the movie, but I don't remember when I watched the movie either. And uh, it, the movie is stronger in my head because uh, I have two kids. And so we watched, we watched the movie a number of times. Yeah, and I chose it because it was, I 
you know, yeah, like it, it was a book from my childhood and I remembered loving the actual book. I just didn't remember anything about it. And because of the recent remake that Disney did 2018, I thought, I thought it was more recent than that, but yeah, I just thought it'd be fun to like look at those different versions of the story and think about it that way. Yeah. The evolution of Mary. So this was a beloved movie in my family. And I, I feel like I say that as if like my family, my family is like special for loving Mary Poppins, which obviously it's not <laughs> like this is a very popular movie, but I do have a lot of memories of watching it with my family. When Disney Plus became a thing a couple of years ago, we were watching it with my family and my husband had had never seen it. I was like, I'm sorry, what? You've never seen this movie. You're going to sit your butt down right now and you're going to watch Mary Poppins for the first time because it really is so special to me and to my family. I I don't even know how many times I watched it when I was a kid, but um, definitely a favorite for a lot of the people in my life. So the book came out in 1934, as I mentioned early on, and then the movie came out in 1964. And often on the podcast, we like don't talk much about a movie adaptation, but I do feel like I have to start with a disclaimer that like it's kind of unavoidable with this one. Yeah. Because the movie is so ubiquitous and is, I think, better known oh, yeah. than the book. And because the movie is so different than the book. So it's sort of hard, at least for me, to to have this conversation about the book without sort of comparing and contrasting to the movie. Yeah. So I'll include that disclaimer up front. And there also is just such like an interesting story about how the movie evolved. And there's also a 2013 film called Saving Mr. Banks. I don't know if you've seen that, Misa. I haven't. I've, I, I saw it and it was on my list of like, things to watch this weekend, but I (laughs) didn't get to it. Well, I highly recommend. So that came up a lot in my research for our conversation today too, because for those who haven't seen it, it's basically the story of like how Walt Disney himself, who I believe is played by Tom Hanks, negotiates with P.L. Travers, the author of the book for the movie rights, because it took him like 15 or 20 years to convince her to give him the rights. Oh. Yeah. And she was a really interesting person and and sort of the evolution of the story of Mary Poppins and the Banks family is pretty personal to her, which I'm sure we'll talk about over the course of this conversation. But Saving Mr. Banks is about not only his fight to get the rice, which took 15 or 20 years, but also a lot of their creative arguments about how the movie should come to life because she had script control. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that I noticed as I was reading that I was so curious about the choices, you know, that the Disney Corporation <laughs> made in the adaptation. And I, I was like wondering how she felt about it, P.L. Travers. Well, she cried at the premiere. She cried angry tears at the uh, premiere. So she didn't feel great about I it. I see um, why, actually. Yeah. I'm curious as an author yourself, like how you would react to that because I do think it's interesting. Like she's she eventually gave up the rights, but then you're like fighting with like the most significant figure in movies at the time, literally Walt Disney himself, to maintain some creative control over not only your book, but also a story that is very personal to you. Like Mr. Banks was based on her father and like the whole story with her father is that he was an alcoholic and he worked in a bank. And so he wasn't very successful in his job. He actually passed away when she was seven, but her whole like motive behind writing Mr. Banks was she wanted to like redeem her father. So he's a banker like her dad, but he's a more successful banker than her dad was. And mm-hmm. he's like still kind mm-hmm. of absent from the kids' lives, but he's not as absent as P.L. Travers's father was. So like Walt Disney was messing with pretty personal stuff for her. Oh, that makes 
sense. I was shocked at how absent he was from the book at all. I really thought I was going to see more of him because the movie was so much in my head. And I'm seeing also where a lot of that story comes from, like this sort of escapism, right? If you're a child growing up with a father whose problems with alcoholism are so bad that they kill him. Yeah, it was it was pretty dark. So I also read her her mother after her father died threatened suicide many times. So PL Travers was like really always trying to be like the stable one in her family and then Mary Poppins herself is loosely based on her aunt who came in and sort of helped the family after the loss of her father. She also had an umbrella with a parrot handle Mm. um so she was really the inspiration for mary poppins and so then you know walt disney wants to come in and like make it all animated penguins and like musical numbers and stuff yeah and and just disneyfy it so i would recommend that movie especially to an author like yourself because i wonder if you Mm -hmm. would relate to like some of the strong feelings that she has about the way that her intellectual property and her personal history should appear on screen yeah, yeah, and no, I totally want. To, I'm going to try and watch it tonight. <laughs> oh, good, great. Well, I have one person who wants to watch it. It's definitely on Disney Plus. Okay, but let's talk about the book because I knew that I was yeah, yeah, carried yeah. away talking about the movie. I have not only talked about the movie itself, but I've talked about the movies about the movie. So anyway, okay. <laughs> so the book was published in 1934, as I mentioned. It was actually the first of eight books in this series, um, the last of which was published in 1988. So she wrote about Mary Poppins for a long time, over 50 years. And I guess my first question to you, Misa, would be like, what were your first impressions when we start the book? We're getting to know the Banks family. The Banks family looks a little bit different than we know of them in the movie. We're getting to know their life. What were your initial reactions to all of that? Okay, so many. First of all, I mean, just on the very first page, there's uh, maybe the first, I don't know, first page or two where she makes it clear that they're not a wealthy family, particularly. Although, I mean, they have a servant and a cook and a, like two servants and a cook. <laughs> but right, there's something about they could either have four children and a nice house or two children and a shabby house. So that was already a surprise. And yeah, I had no idea how much the movie had taken over my memory of the book, right? Because she doesn't come in on a, an umbrella. She just gets blown into the door, basically, Mary Poppins. And I mean, there's so many little plot things. There's, you know, the baby twins. And I was struck by just how, like, brusque she is and abrupt. And, um, yeah, we can talk. I mean, a lot of the adult characters really shocked me, actually. And then I watched the movie and, like, and then it annoyed me how sweet um, Julie Andrews, like, she'd sort of do this strict act but then she'd get that like beautiful like maria from the sound of music smile on her face yeah. <laughs> and this tender look in her eye and i was like uh, it doesn't that doesn't fit <laughs> it's not who she was in the book at all and i um yeah yeah i my memory of uh, i i had forgotten just how kind of sweet they make her in the movie even though i've watched the movie more recently than having read the book so that yeah i guess that must have made a big impression on me when i read it as a child just how how like stern isn't even the word for it, right? Like, like I mean, borderline abusive. I, I don't. Even... She's a little scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I have so much to say in response to all of that. So I think the adults in the book are really interesting. So Mary Poppins is, of course, like the main adult, and as you said, she's so much different in the book than we have come to know and love her. You know, in the movie, she's a totally different character. And kind of at her core, I would say she's the same but the way her personality actually manifests is so different yes and pl travers sort of emphasizes really specific things like she emphasizes the fact that she's not especially pretty but she's very vain and then of course in the movie we have julie andrews who is like one of the most beautiful women ever (laughs) 
Yeah. And in the movie, they write that into the script, right? Like the children want a pretty nanny and like, which is weird. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And practically perfect in every way. You know, that's kind of how she views herself. But I think the parents are really fascinating. And when I was doing research, and there are so many cool think pieces about all things Mary Poppins, especially ones that came out in 2013, when Saving Mr. Banks released, and then again in 2018, when the Emily Blunt movie came out. So I'll link to all of these in in the show notes for this episode. But I found so many interesting things about like, why the parents had to change for the movie. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that P.L. Travers was born in Australia and spent most of her life in London, I believe. And she's writing in 1934 about this very British idea of a nanny and like the British nursery, which is like a thing. Like the British nursery Mm -hmm. is a thing that is like very romanticized in British literature, specifically at least from what I've read. And there was a lot of like specific stuff to the time that I hadn't really thought about. Like Walt Disney was trying to figure out how do we adapt this story so that Americans can understand like the nanny's role in a family, because it's not necessarily something that like a lot of American families had an understanding of in 1964 when the movie came out, like that this was a newer idea for a lot of Mm, Americans. mm -hmm. And there's also the socioeconomic stuff, which I found really interesting because like you said, very early on in the book, we find out that the Banks family is not wealthy. And in the movie, I always thought that they were like, they seemed like they had a lot of money, right? Yeah, they were fancy. The dad seemed to have like a really great job. And the house seemed really nice to me. The mom has all this extra time to to fight for suffrage, which I love. Yes. Um, and I missed in the book for sure. But yes. you know, like cut to me like waltzing around my apartment singing that song on the morning of election day 2016, which now is a very <laughs> sad memory. But like I was literally doing that on the morning of election day 2016. Um, if I'd only known what was to come. But So, yeah, I mean, I think the fact that that they had to figure out how to make Americans understand the role that a nanny plays in, like, this British family in 1934. And then I also was reading about this, like, phenomenon that happened, I guess, like, in the 30s in in England, where, like, a lot of working class young people who were probably, like, about Mary Poppins' age in their 20s, they were moving away from these jobs where they were, like, working service jobs, like, working in homes, working as nannies. And so the fact that Mary Poppins, like, refuses to provide references and is basically like it's my way or the highway is actually very reflective of like an economic shift that was happening at the time where like Uh... these people yeah these like working class people did not want to work for these middle class families anymore and so they were like okay well I'm not like I don't have to give you these references if if you don't really want me to work here then I'll leave like that was kind of this shift happening so there's a lot of like cool historical context going on that is cool because she actually says like uh, she says something like, well, that's not that's uh, we don't do that anymore. Right. It's not fashionable anymore to ask for references. In fact, it's true. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I like lear- I actually learned a lot working on this one. The other thing that I thought was kind of interesting in the book to movie transformation is that as we've kind of alluded to, like once we you know, we meet the parents very briefly in the beginning of the book, but they don't really come back at all. There's no kite flying scene there's no like big right. finale where the whole family comes together it's like they hire mary poppins to take care of the kids 
end of story. And they just disappear. Yeah. Yeah. They disappear. Like the parents never sort of regain an interest in parenting their children more actively. And that's another thing that it seems that Walt Disney felt very strongly about. Like he wanted to depict this like very specific kind of family that was more aligned with the American family that he was trying to portray in his movies in the 60s. And so there had to be like a payoff at the end where the bank's parents realized that they actually wanted to like parent their children. And so that's why the big kite flying scene comes in. And it's like Mm -hmm. Mary Poppins is purpose in the movie is to come in and basically like show the parents that they want to be in their children's lives. And that's not what happens in the book at all. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that was, again, like, I forgot that that wasn't a part of the the book. In fact, a sort of big picture, right? Like, yeah, Disney like sort of put this other narrative on top of the narrative that's in the book, right? Layered this whole, like the parents, it almost becomes about the parents in a, in a lot of ways, right? In the movie. And whereas in the book, there's like not even really a narrative arc at all. I, I, I was like, I'll have to reread it and see, but it just felt like the parents are there because they have to be there to hire her. And then they just disappear. And the kids just go on adventure after adventure after adventure. And occasionally a parent, oh, like they, when they go to visit Mr. Banks's bank, like they never even get there. Like, yeah. I, I was like, I turned the page thinking, okay, now we're going to be at the bank scene. And, and we moved right on <laughs> to like another day and another outing. Yeah. And it was so sad because the kids were like so excited to see the dad. It was like, yay, we get to go spend time with dad. And then it we like forget that the dad's even there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I wish I could remember my memory of that as a kid. I, I like, I, it's, it's gone, but. I, I, yeah, I just, I was, it was, yeah, the next chapter was the gingerbread chapter, which I'd love to talk to you about later with the two very tall daughters and the horrible mom. Yeah. So it's sort of episodic in nature. So I think like that's kind of what we're getting at is that like there's mm-hmm. not a narrative arc. We meet Mary Poppins at the beginning when she's hired. And then at the end, like spoiler alert, she leaves just like in the movie when the, when the wind changes. But in between, you really like don't need to read it all at one time like I actually was thinking that this would be a great read aloud if you had little kids like you could just pick one of the chapters I'd say like for the most part they're like fairly appropriate there are a couple that I was like oh I don't know about this but for the most part like they just read like kind of little fairy tale-ish stories they almost felt like roll dollish to me in some ways like that kind of dark Mm. humorous whimsy yeah but I'd love to talk about like maybe what your like favorite adventures because each chapter each episode is like a different adventure that Mary Poppins takes them on or also like kind of makes them believe never happened like there's a little bit of gaslighting but let's talk about like what were your favorite stories you know I don't even I'm trying I'm like I've got the book in front of me I mean I think the most interesting story to me is the two most interesting stories to me are the one where they visit the the gingerbread. Well, they they go shopping, right? They're doing the grocery shopping. They go they go to the butchers. They go to the fishmonger, and then they go to the gingerbread lady, the bakery. And Mary Poppins is mean to everyone. And then at the bakery, the gingerbread bakery, which is magical and appears out of nowhere, there the, right there's the two enormous sad daughters who are running the counter, and then this short, sharp, horrible old lady comes out. I mean, I don't know. I was looking to see if there was any redeeming quality about her. I mean, she's nice to Mary Poppins and she's nice to Jane and Michael, but she's terrible to her own children. And I could never figure that out. But then the end of it is just so beautiful. Like this, they 
take these gold paper stars off of their gingerbreads, which they buy gingerbread cakes. And then in the middle of the night, they look out and they're Mary Poppins and Annie and Fanny and Mrs. Corey are climbing into the sky and pasting the stars in the sky. And I just, that image is so, I, I, I mean, I was reading this thinking, I know why I love this book as a child. Like this is, this is one of the stories I would have loved. And I, I don't know if I would have caught the weird mother-daughter dynamic <laughs> going on. I, I, I don't, I, like, I don't know why I don't remember that. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember any of that either. And I definitely read it. I don't remember, I didn't remember this as this like episodic book. I think I probably remembered it as the movie and like assumed that it was much more similar to the movie because I read it when I was so young. I loved that chapter too, especially the end. Like there's such beautiful imagery. Yeah. I mean, except for the fact that like they literally stole the stars out of Jane and Michael's like hiding places. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that's the, like there's so much of that. I forgot about that. Yes. She does. She just sneaks in and takes them. Right. Yeah. There's so much of that. Like, I, I, yeah, this chapter I feel like is emblematic of the book in that there's this dark side, like you said, this really very dark undercurrent, very sad feeling throughout, almost tragic in some some ways, I think. And and at the same time, like you used the word whimsy before, which is exactly the word that I thought of when I was reading it. This, the the imagery, this sort of really whimsical, like truly magical thread, going all the way through. Like, I don't know what to make of it, honestly. Yeah, and I didn't find anything about this, but I was curious if P.L. Travers identified as any sort of like an environmentalist because I did feel like there was a heavy emphasis on these like natural images. So like the stars in the sky, which we kind of get again later on when Maya, who is like a star, and I don't know much about stars or constellations, but from what I can understand, Maya is a star in the Pleiades constellation. Right, right. And she sort of like comes to life and and meets the children Christmas shopping. So we get another image of the stars there where she like then flies back up into the sky to take her place in the constellation. We have a lot of talking animals. We have the children traveling all over the world and kind of like learning about the animals that are in all four corners of the globe. And so I, I was just noticing that a lot of these like really vivid images that the author uses are tied to like animals and nature. And I didn't find anything about if she had like any sort of environmental environmental interests. I did find that she had some loose socialist associations. And somebody, one of the think pieces that I read talks about how you can kind of see that in this book because it celebrates like working people. So like, for instance, Mrs. Corey mm -hmm. and Fanny and Annie, like they sort mm -hmm. of become the heroes and like Mary Poppins associates with people like Mrs. Corey and like zookeepers and Bert, the matchman, like mm -hmm. those mm -hmm. are kind of the people who are elevated in this book. Whereas a lot of other stories that were being written at this time for children were about like Kings and Queens and like those kinds of fairy tales. So um, that's a bit of a side note, but I didn't see anything about like an environmental interest, but I was like, I walked away from this book being like, this is somebody who loves animals and is like passionate about like yeah. our world. So that was kind of interesting, but I agree with you. Like that chapter is, it kind of captures the whole book and that there's a magic to it and a magic that kind of speaks to the way we all understand the story from the movie. But at the same time, like we're talking about this really mean woman named Mrs. Corey. We're talking about these two younger women named Fanny and Annie who are sort of reduced to their like size by the author because all that she can really say about them is that they're like huge, which feels somewhat fat phobic to me. 
And then we have this like dark undercurrent where Mary Poppins sort of forces the children to tell her where they hid these paper stars from their gingerbread, even though they don't really want to tell her. And then when they do, they find out later on that like, like they watch her take the paper stars from their hiding spots, steal them and give them back to her friends to put in the sky. So it's weird because I'm like, oh, I love the image of like these paper stars being added to the night sky. And like, that's so magical. But hey, like, why did you steal their stuff? Right. And then she denies it. I, yeah. just, I mean, she basically denies the entire thing ever happened, which happens at the end of every every magical episode. And to me that, I mean, it contradicts, you know, there's the one chapter, there's another chapter that I loved, which is also really sad, which is the chapter that's about the twins, the, the two babies, right? Yeah. So in the, in the book, so that, you know, the Disney took the twins out of the picture because they complicated things, I'm sure. <laughs> Although they're really not. We can't have babies on set. The babies on set <laughs> is just like too much yeah. to deal with. <laughs> and there, and it's the, like, it's the, just one chapter from their point of view and they're talking like like people who know how to speak English and and they're talking with the bird and they everybody understands each other and the wind and and it's so cute how they're you know at first it's like oh how cute like you know the babies have their own little language and they understand nature of course that makes sense you know and and they think the parents are so silly because they don't understand and Mary Poppins seems to be sad that you know she knows that at when they turn one they're gonna forget everything and the poor babies are like no we'll never forget yeah and then sure enough on their first birthday they're just babbling which was kind of weird to me I'm like I don't understand why they whatever like don't they do they not have any of their own thoughts anymore (laughs) but they've forgotten how to speak this sort of natural like you said, like nature, natural language that Mary Poppins still remembers from whenever she was a child or where whatever, wherever she's from. And it's sort of sad. I get the feeling that Mary Poppins wishes this wouldn't happen, right? And at the same time, every single time, like, and and she like brings all this same magic into Michael and Jane's lives. And then when they embrace it, she's like, no, no, what are you, what are you kidding? Like, you know, like, I don't understand. Like, why wouldn't she want to nurture that? Yeah, it's interesting because she like brings them into the magic, as you said. And then often in the midst of the magic, she's like reprimanding them for Mm -hmm. participating in the magic, even though like they wouldn't be there if not for her. Mm -hmm. And then after the magic, after the magical incident, when they're like recapping it and talking about it and trying to make sense of it. Because for whatever reason, even though she's like so cruel and like kind of outright mean to them, they like are desperate for her approval, which makes me so sad, especially Michael. He's like so earnest in his love for her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She consistently like sort of like makes fun of them, tells them it didn't happen or just like tells them to be quiet. Like it's very much like, an okay, now that this is over, children should be seen and not heard kind of situation. So it's confusing because I'm not quite sure what we're supposed to make of her. Like she's a very confusing Mm -hmm. character. And I found so many like just really thoughtful observations about her in the essays that I read, which again, I will um, be sure to link in the show notes for this episode. But I'll, I'll call out one line from a Book Riot article written in 2019. And it says, as far as comparing the two versions of Mary Poppins that so many of us know, while they are all similar by nature, they are completely different in personality. Julie Andrews' Mary Poppins is never cross, but the Mary Poppins in the books is not only usually cross, but reads as bitter, unloving, and grumpy. 
she also comes across as playing with the children's minds, manipulating and belittling them while claiming that their magical adventures never happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, yeah. And when I, you hear that, I'm like, yeah, it's true. And she sounds like a terrible person. And yet she, I didn't come away from that book hating her. I, I mean, I still, I, I, I feel like it's supposed to be kind of funny. Mm. Like it's so funny that all this beautiful magic is happening and she's just acting as if it's normal and what, you know, like put your coat on, you know? And so I, I, I do, I did like the, that sort of that juxtaposition of, the mundane and the I'm your nanny and I'm going to be the strict nanny that tells you all the things that a strict nanny would say. And although I, yeah, I still, I still can't square that with why she would deny any of that happened, you know? And, and, and yeah. And they're, they're saying things like, Oh, they knew better than to, they knew better than to ask her questions when she was in a mood like this. And I don't know, it sounds like I, you know, I just read a book in which a character has an abusive father and that's exactly what she says, you know, like, I knew better to talk to him than to talk to him when he was in a mood like this. Or when he looked at me like that, I knew I better just do exactly what he said. And there's a lot of that. <laughs> there's a lot of that in the book. But I never got the feeling. I, I, I don't know. I never felt like poor Jane and Michael. Maybe I did. I don't know. I'm anyway, still sorting through my feelings about that, I guess. Yeah, I understand. And I do think like, I guess I, I'm hesitant to square all of this by being like, oh, there's sort of like a, an element of this that maybe is lost in translation between like this concept of a very formal British nanny in the early 20th century and what we as Americans in 2021 or even as Americans when this movie came out or reading this book in other times would have been able to totally understand. There's also this mm -hmm. British humor thing that I feel like I still don't always quite get. Like I think to your point, there probably is some level of humor intended in the interactions that maybe we're missing because it was written for a different audience, but it is a little bit confusing. And some of the other observations that I read about the book, which, and this just makes me sad and I'm not sure how I feel about it other than just feeling sad. They talk about how like, there's just this, constant threat of abandonment for the children in this whole book like Mary Poppins is constantly holding over their head the possibility that she could leave when the wind changes and they're like so desperate to make her stay which I understand given the fact that again we don't see their parents like one time and so as far as we know the only adult that they're interacting with the only adult who's really available to take care of them is Mary Poppins and so the fact that like she could just decide to leave whenever that is very scary for a little kid mm-hmm mm-hmm I, yeah, I don't know what to make of it. And, and and for me, as an adult, that's kind of, for me, uh, yeah, as an adult, that's sort of part of the charm and the sort of fascination I have with this book now is that, what's that all about? I mean, you know, and maybe she's just writing the adults that she had in her life, right? She had this alcoholic father, and it sounds like a depressive and possibly some kind of like manipulative mother and an aunt who maybe didn't want to be there helping. I don't know. Well, and she didn't want to write for children. Like she was very clear about that. She wrote a whole article in the New York Times at one point that I think the headline was something like, I do not write for children. Like it was very important to her not to be known as a children's writer. I think she had written a few other things before Mary Poppins. She worked as a journalist in London. And then mm -hmm. she wrote maybe another book or two before Mary Poppins. And she 
was worried about like her reputation sort of in the literary world. And so oh, I wonder if, if she sort of, yeah, <laughs> I mean, but also like times have changed so much. Being a YA author is so cool now, but there wasn't yeah. like a market for that in 1934. But yeah, I, I sort of want to read even more about her because she seems like a really fascinating person. There was another chapter that I wanted to talk about with you specifically because it has in itself sort of a unique history. And I wonder if you noticed that in the chapter Bad Tuesday, yeah. It is noted in the book as revised. And as I was reading the chapter, I was like, ooh, I have a feeling I know why this might have been revised. <laughs> but I did find out all the details if you're interested. So for context listeners, Bad Tuesday is an episode in the story where Michael basically wakes up in like a terrible mood, which is hilarious. Like he is just... He just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, which is what Mary Poppins tells him. And he thinks that it's, you know, she's being literal about that. And he doesn't get it. He's just being like horrible. He's being a horrible kid. And they find this compass on the street. And essentially the compass like allows them to travel all over the world in a split second. And so they go to the east and the west and the north and the south. And oh, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, oh, no, oh, no, no. Okay, so yeah. this chapter was edited and revised not once, Misa, but twice. Mm -hmm. Oh, I looked so it up. I don't. I it up. Oh, you yeah. did. Okay, okay. It's so crazy. Mm -hmm. So the first time they edited it, it was to remove some like stereotypes. I'm not even gonna like go into the specifics because I'm sure people can draw their own conclusions about the kinds of stereotypes that were used about people in these four regions. And they they still talked in that update about like meeting people in different parts of the world, but it wasn't quite. It still wasn't quite there. It wasn't it. And so then she edited it again in the 80s and changed it to meeting animals. So right. when they go to the east, they meet a panda. And when they go to the west, they meet a dolphin. And in the north, they meet a polar bear. And in the south, I forget what they, it's like, a, I don't even remember, some a other animal. bird, like a macaw or something like that, macaque, I don't know. Yes, but as as a resident of the Bay Area, you'll appreciate that the San Francisco library system actually banned Mary Poppins. Um, yes. And that was a huge reason why she had to redo it for a second time. So that I didn't really, oh yeah, because I forget when they banned it. But uh, that's interesting that that was the, one of the motivations. That's so San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, they're like, we can't do it. Sorry, we can't do it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember reading, I, I, I think I looked it up. I, I immediately Googled before I even started reading the chapter, but then I saw something about the compass. I was like, oh, okay. Like, it, yeah. And it's easy to see where it went and why. And I, my, my son was saying, wow, if they revised it in the 60s, it must have been really bad because there was plenty of books still being published all the way into the 70s that were pretty problematic, like have plenty of racial stereotypes. And yeah, if there's these, like, if somebody caught it in 1966 and they revised it in 67, like it must have been terrible. Yeah, I guess, I guess so. I don't even want to think about it really. <laughs> no, I think your son makes an excellent point. So that was just interesting. It was kind of convenient because a lot of times when these things happen in the books we read for the podcast, it's much harder to find like the history of it. And this, I will say it's kind of cool that it's very open. Like there's a lot out there about this revision and um, it was interesting to read about. My personal favorite episode in the book was probably the one that like, it had the least to teach, but I just thought it was so cute. And it was a story about the neighbor's dog, Andrew. Oh, yeah. And I was so taken with it. And this is so embarrassing. But listeners who follow me on Instagram and know how much I love my dog will understand that I actually found myself like reading 
pieces of it out loud to my dog because I was just like squealing with glee. I was like, this feels like I'm like in the moments when I pretend that you are a human child, like this is the story that I would want to read to you because it's about this dog named Andrew who lives this like pampered life, but he doesn't want to be pampered. Like he wants to be free. He wants to be like a real dog and he befriends this Mm -hmm. like stray and he insists that the stray come inside and he's like barking with the owner that he won't come inside unless his new friend can come inside. He won't come inside unless his new friend can also sleep in the bed with him. Like I just thought it was so charming and sort of had like very little to do with the rest of the book. But as like even a story unto itself, I thought it was so sweet. It was super cute. And he's, uh, I mean, it was so, um, Andrew had such a personality, which I, I loved, right? Yeah. And then he has to wear this little coat. Is that, or am I making that up about the coat? No, it's an overcoat, I think is what they called it. His Andrew, yeah, why are yeah. you wearing your overcoat? <laughs> <laughs> I I just thought I I loved that. He was so cute. And such a loyal friend. I loved him. I think one of the the most notable differences between the book and the movie is the absence of Bert in the book. And I wanted to bring that up because Bert is such a major fixture of the movie. Dick Van Dyke is, of course, like, while problematic in his own right, I believe, I think some things have come out about him recently. Um, But at the time, he sort of like lit up this movie and was like a celebrated part of Mary Poppins and very charming with his dance numbers. And it kind of seems like they have a crush on each other, but it's unclear. But he's he's in the whole movie. He's only in one chapter of the book. Yeah, I, I finished the book and then watched the movie and was like, wait, yeah, wait, wait, what? He's he's in the one where and then and then the, and the and the the wildest thing is that the kids aren't even in the chapter that he's in, right? It's it's Mary Poppins' day off and she goes and hangs out with Bert all day. In that that part is in the movie where um they jump into the chalk drawing, right? Is that yeah, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess they maintained because there's a moment in that mo- in the movie where Mary Poppins and Bert have their own little that little lunch with all the penguins. <laughs> I was watching it again and I was and yeah, my son's like why penguins <laughs> like i don't know i guess because they're waiters you know like, so they wear yeah. you know and he's not even a ch- he's not a chimney sweep like i then i was like where did the chimney sweep idea come from and in the movie yeah because i was wondering like because i had the same question and i was like i feel like 1964 people were still smoking a lot because my first thought was like oh maybe they didn't want a mention of like a match man as a main character because of like uh, implications with smoking but we're talking about like 1964 here when like smoking was kind mm-hmm. of what everybody did maybe like it was still like kids shouldn't play with matches but I was learning about that too because being a chimney sweep is such a core part of Bert's character yeah. in the movie yeah and maybe they're like oh well we got Dick Van Dyke and he can dance so we need to give him a job where he can dance with like a, a broom <laughs> I don't know yeah. Or or maybe, maybe that, I mean, in 1967, people would have been like a matchman. Like what? What? Why is someone selling matches on the street? You know, and then like, okay, well, what's like matches? Yeah. <laughs> Chimneys. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. No, that's a good point. And also, I guess like a chimney sweep gets you off the ground. And then we sort of, it like brings us a little closer to Mary Poppins's like tendency to fly. I don't know. I just made that one up. Yeah, so we're, yeah. we're really inventing theories here, but I think, I think both <laughs> of them are very legitimate personally. But yeah, I, I thought that it was interesting that he wasn't in the book and I missed him. I think I just missed the, I just missed 
adults that were a little bit kinder and gentler because in the movie like Mary Poppins is more serious and Bert kind of encourages her to be more playful and and the parents also like are a little silly even though I don't think they mean to be like they're just kind of bumbling around their lives so Mm -hmm. I think I don't know that it was like Bert specifically that I missed in the book or or like I don't think I necessarily missed that there wasn't a clear potential love interest for Mary Poppins I think I just wanted more like adult characters to ground the story because there really aren't any no they're not right just different ones that appear in each little episode yeah i was thinking the same thing just somebody kind right consistently kind to them i I mean i don't know i don't know maybe 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 kids don't need that (laughs) in the book but i i loved his yeah i just loved his character in the movie dick van dyke's Bert's character in the movie because yeah just like you said he's a um I mean, he's really the emotional center of the of the movie, right? I mean, Mary Poppins, of course, but she's, you know, we know he's, we know she's going to leave. We don't completely understand her, but like Bert is someone who's right. He's there, he's predictable, he's always kind, and um, yeah, grounding, just like you said. I think I I really loved that character in the movie, and it w- would have been nice to have a Bert in the book. <laughs> Do you pick up on any sort of like? moral in the story I read some very like conflicting arguments about that like some people seem to think that P.L. Travers was trying to teach kids a different lesson in every character some people were sort of like frustrated by the lack of that especially in this era when a lot of authors were pretty into moralizing for young kids like what was your read on that especially as somebody who who you have kids and I'm sure you've read lots of different books with them like do you pick up on anything of that nature in this book? I don't. And I and I remember kind of wondering if there was. To me, it just feels like just an escape. Like, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I didn't find myself thinking, oh, this is something that kids would take, a, that, that a parent would want a child to take away from this book. And that doesn't bother me. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's my take on it. I, I, I felt like this was just a wonderful way to escape into this completely sort of whimsical magical world. There's nothing about like be nice, right? Because she's <laughs> there's not. nothing about be kind. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean even the even the the feed the birds one with the, the bird lady, in the movie it becomes a thing about our moral obligation to be kind to people who who are out there selling crumbs to feed the birds to make a living. Mary Poppins like doesn't even interact with the bird lady in the book, I think. And it's Jane who makes up this sort of lovely story about her. And then Mary Poppins just shoots that one right down. So yeah, so no morals. (laughs) No morals. Bottom line. (laughs) Yeah. The one thing I stumbled on that I kind of liked, and I think this was one of the essays that argued that there is no moral, you know, similarly, like we're not taking a lesson of like, be kind, we're not learning to be compassionate. But this particular essay argues that like, there is this sense of like, what Mary Poppins is giving these kids is a sense of like, how to cope with challenges on their own, which isn't why you hire a nanny for young children. (laughs) I don't think that that was the point. But this author argues that like, you know, maybe these kids will look back and be like, oh, well, my nanny gave me the tools to sort of like figure some things out on my own and to accept like the whimsy of the world and take it as it as it comes. So I thought that was sort of interesting. But again, like not the point of a nanny. But on the whole, Misa, 
I know that it can be hard to remember like your childhood experience reading the book, but I guess I'd love to know how you feel that this rereading experience holds up to your understanding of the Mary Poppins universe as a whole, whether that's whatever you remember of the book, your experiences watching the movie. How does this reread in 2021 measure up to all of that? Yeah, you know, I I mean, I really liked it despite, you know, all the sort of problems we've been finding with her character I I was just so taken with the prose I mean it's just so beautiful and it's so whimsical and the imagery is just gorgeous yeah despite Mary Poppins being not a very nice person I actually kind of liked this version I mean it was was just that she was consistent right like the one in the Disney movies began to bother me because she was not as stern as I imagined her to be (laughs) My mom was really strict. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> You're like, there needs to be more rules, Mary Poppins. Yeah. <laughs> but in some ways, I, I guess in a lot of ways, actually, I like it better than the first movie. I didn't get a chance to watch the second movie. I was, I was It was in my plan, but I didn't get to it. The second movie being the remake with Lin-Manuel Miranda and um, what's her name? Emily Blunt. Yeah, I want to watch that too. I haven't seen it, but I read that she, her Mary Poppins is more similar to P.L. Travers's version. So I, yeah. we'll both have yeah. to watch it. And maybe we'll have to swap mm-hmm. notes on how we feel about that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, I, I really liked it a lot as a story. The writing was beautiful. I agree with you there. And I, I thought that it was just, I enjoyed like reading it. I enjoyed talking about it. I always love when I get to read a book for the podcast where there's so much out there about it because sometimes there's just not as much to dig into. So I had a lot of fun preparing to talk to you because there's just so much out there to think about. And I As I mentioned, I'll include links to all of these resources in the show notes. But Misa, other than Mary Poppins, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? I've been reading a lot of young adults. So there's, okay, I've I've been reading a lot lately and listening to a lot. Uh, One book that came out earlier this year is called When We Were Infinite by Kelly Loy Gilbert. I'm a big fan of of beautiful prose and not beautiful, but, you know, like uh, spare, lean, effective. And Kelly does this and she creates these characters and this is, she does this in all of her books that are, are so multifaceted. They're people who maybe you kind of don't want to like them, but you have to like them. She makes them, she gives you an insight into even the characters that you don't like that makes you sympathize with them or see their point of view a little bit. And yeah, it's about a, a group of friends. They're about to graduate from high school And they uh, unexpectedly witness the father of one of the friends abusing his son. And so they're concerned. They don't know what to do. They want to help the boy, but he doesn't want help. You know, there's a, there's a, his best friend is part of that group. And it's, it's more about their relationship. She desperately wants to rescue him and he will not let her. And um, it's just beautiful. Sad. It sounds really sad, but in the end, it's uplifting. Uh, anyway, and yeah, so that one's called um, When We Were Infinite by Kelly Lloyd Gilbert. And I'm also really looking forward to reading The Luck of the Titanic by Stacey Lee. And that's uh, a historical fiction about a Chinese-English girl who wants to go to America and join the, be an acrobat in the circus and also to look for her brother. And she gets a ticket to go on the, to take the Titanic and across the Atlantic. And um, uh, she's turned away because... The United States at that time is not accepting Chinese immigrants. And so she then stows away on board and has adventures. And we all know what happens to the Titanic, but she is rescued in the end. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's sort of like a caper, but also a sort of social commentary. And just a really, I, I, I just can't wait to read it. 
and Stacey's just amazing. Every book she's ever written has been wonderful. So those both sound fantastic. And I will include links to those in the show notes as well. And Misa, you have a new book coming out very shortly too, Love and Other Natural Disasters. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about it so that our listeners can get excited and go get themselves a copy. Okay. Sure. So uh, it would be, I, I think you could call it To All the Boys I've Loved Before, crossed with, uh, the one I would mash it up with is a book that's lesser known, but but I, I'm going to just push it right now. It's called The Falling in Love Montage, which is a, a lesbian rom-com, which is so funny. It's by Sierra Smith, Smith with a Y. Uh, and yeah, so it's a girl who's coming off kind of a bruising, um, humiliating uh, rejection at a party and uh, into summer vacation. And she's sort of determined to remake herself and reinvent herself and have like the summer of her life. And, and part of that plan is to fall in love with a, with a beautiful, gorgeous, sophisticated girl. And uh, she's going to do this in San Francisco where she's spending the summer with her uncles. You know, right away she meets this gorgeous, beautiful, sophisticated girl who, because it's a rom-com, lo and behold, coincidentally, has just broken up with her her girlfriend and wants to set up a fake dating situation to make the ex-girlfriend jealous. And uh, Nozomi, who's the main character, thinks like, perfect, yes. Like, because every rom-com we've ever read and ever seen, the fake dating relationship always becomes the real one at the end. So she jumps on this opportunity and hijinks ensue. <laughs> oh, that sounds so yeah, good. Yeah. So things, things, and yeah, and you know, things don't turn out the way we think they're going to turn out. I don't know. Is that a spoiler? I don't. Uh, <laughs> no, I think Maybe it's just not. intriguing. I think it just adds intrigue, and now everybody's going to be even more excited to read *Love and Other Natural Disasters*. That sounds really great, and congratulations on the imminent release at this point. That's so exciting. Thank you. Thanks. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I tried to make it really funny and light and a lot of fun. So. That's what we all need these days, I think. I think we're ready for that. But it has been such a treat chatting with you. I'm so grateful to you for reading Mary Poppins and for taking the time to chat with me about it. And I can't wait to hear what you think about Saving Mr. Banks. You'll have to let me know if you decide to watch it. Yes. Yeah, it's so good. I think you're going to like it. I have to rewatch it too. I'm here like recommending something that I haven't seen in seven years, but I'm going to rewatch it too. <laughs> and it was so nice getting to know you listeners. Go check out links to Misa's books in the show notes for this episode. And Misa, I hope you have a great rest of your Monday and an even better rest of your week. Thanks. Thank you very much for having me and have a great day. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.